Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the third and final episode of the Amazing Podcast. Uh, like I've said a few times up till now, this is a three-part podcast. The first part was on parenting uh, during the kids phase. The second part was about the marriage phase and the inclusion of in-law children. And this third and final episode is going to circulate around the topic of grandparenting. And with that, I want to move on already to the first question. And it's similar to the first question that we asked during the last episode, and that is... Um, we talked about parenting children, and then we talked about parenting children who are, you know, uh, young adults or, you know, closer to the marriage phase. Uh, and I asked you what the main difference was between um, children who are, you know, in the child phase as opposed to children who are later on in life. And I guess that the first question of this podcast would be the same. And that is, how do you perceive, what do you perceive to be the main difference between parenting as a whole and grandparenting? I think that's pretty much a no brainer. Um, parenting is a full-time job. Grandparenting is a full-time job that doesn't require as much time. So, um, look, as a parent, you have to deal with every day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-to-minute um, issues, and you have to be on call when they come up. And you have to be in sync enough that you can um, preempt issues, I guess you want to try. Whereas grandparenting, what do I describe it as? Buying a bag of popcorn and going into the bleachers. Great grandparenting is buying two bags of popcorn and going way up into the bleachers. So I guess, I guess the difference is the, what you do with the view. When you're a parent, you see things, you have to act upon them or decide not to act upon them. If you're a grandparent, you watch and back to if you're perceived as relevant or if you attempt to be relevant or if you, you know, or you are, then when you see something that you feel somebody might benefit or somebody might feel like chatting about or something like that, something that you, that you see, you can bring that up because as a parent, you have the right to say, and as a grandparent, you have the right to say. It doesn't mean your children um, or grandchildren, as they become more and more adult or they have parents, you know, will necessarily listen to you or heed what you say, but it doesn't mean coming with the 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 blood tie, you have a right to say. We do believe we have a right to say. You just have to use it judiciously. And when you're sitting in the bleachers eating your popcorn, you hope that your kids notice you sitting there, that if they would like to chat with you about anything, you're available to chat. I think, I think that's different. You can't impose, you can't um, force, but but you don't but you don't want to if you have a healthy relationship with your children and with your grandchildren then there is sometimes just natural dialogue that happens conversation or sometimes intervention that people can choose to listen to or not 
Omar, you talked about a lot of topics right now that I want to dissect one by one. One thing that you just mentioned was <laughs> one, one thing that you just mentioned, a word you just mentioned um, was relevance um, and maintaining relevance. My question to you is, what exactly do you mean when you say relevance towards your grandchildren and, and what significance does relevance have in a relationship with grandchildren? I think relevance is um, is what powers a relationship in many ways. Yeah, you can have, you know, there is somebody that you have to revere. A grandparent, a great-grandparent. You have to, you, some people say you have to revere or you want to revere. You know, you come in and you say a proper hello, but, you know, you can do that if you should do that, and you can do that if you'd like to do that. And the difference between should and want to probably might be what I'm talking about, or partially of what I'm talking about. Um, I'm trying to remember back to my grandparents. There was more of a uh, distance with my grandparents and us was a different generation, though I lived every Friday night for a very long time with my grandmother Nettie after my grandfather died. I used to be dispatched on a Friday night after dinner to sleep there. I can't say it was fun. Uh, She was pretty rigid about what she did and what she had and the food I had to eat in the morning and all that kind of stuff. And I did it, um, though I'm not sure that our relationship was enhanced by it. I'm not sure that our conversations were deeper as a result more than other of the children that did not end up sleeping there on Friday nights and having breakfast in the morning. So maybe that's something to think about. Um, But, you know, you go in and you behave and you chat and you do. So what does relevance mean? You're relevant to grandchildren in different ways, right? So one is like bribery, right? I have those lollipops here until I found the right lollipop that's not too big, not too small, flavor everybody likes. Actually, we go to Gadeira. I found them in Gadeira. So I go there for them in case anybody wants to know where to get them. So I guess I'm relevant to the smaller kids because I don't try not to let them leave without a lollipop. Now, if I was a parent, maybe I wouldn't want them to have a lollipop because I'd be paying the dental bills. But as a grandparent, it's, you want to call it a bribe or you want to call it relevance to that child. That's how they relate to me. They come to Oma and Poppy's house, they hang around, they play, they do whatever that happens, they leave with a lollipop. They might want to come back. So that's one level of relevance. Having pampers here, I don't think I have as many as I used to, but having pampers here when kids come and so that the parents can change their kids fairly easily is being relevant to those parents and for those children. It doesn't necessarily have to be communicated in words. It has to sometimes be communicated in actions. You know, what I said, my gra- my parents, did. they made it easy to come. You know, back again to the easy to come. Relevance is about um, making it easy 
for whatever child, grandchild, great-grandchild, to um, either to interact on an intellectual level, on a um, chatty level, on on any level, and and to have the right equipment, tools, communications, time to be there when they need you in whichever aspect they may want you to be available or need you to be available. I hope that made sense. Sounds like I ranted a bit. Oh my, you just you just talked a lot about the No, uh, not too much. You just talked about the practicalities of remaining of of maintaining that relevance, and I appreciate that. But I kind of want to take it one step backwards, and I want to ask, you know, just conceptually to begin with, you know, why do you aspire? Why do you strive to maintain relevance towards your grandchildren at all? I mean, what's what's the what's the catalyst behind that? That's a really good question, Chaim. So who cares? Who cares if your grandparents are relevant? And if you're a grandparent, who cares if they think you're relevant? You go do your thing, they do their thing, you watch them, you clap, you're happy. You know, you go to a tech you go to a wedding, everybody says mazel tov, things are good. So I guess not every parent and grandparent feel the way we do. Now, is it that we don't have enough in our life? that we want to maintain that connection? Is it that we're like sad, we're not full-time parents anymore? Is it, I don't know, I can come up with other questions too. I don't think that's it. I think that Poppy, Daddy, and I see our greater family as an incredible, an incredible thing. I, I started to say an incredible achievement, but I don't think that we achieved it. I don't think it's our achievement. I think it is our mazal. And we look at the family as just an incredible source of strength to one another, of, of joy, of compassion, of interest, and either you know, that stems from our interest, or we're truly, truly interested in being part of this incredible thing. And to really be a part of an incredible thing, you gotta get down dirty. And you gotta hear, and you gotta listen, you gotta know, and not everything, not all the time. But you don't want to be a bystander. And I think we don't wanna be bystanders in this incredible family that you know, we have, or, you know, we're a little bit biased, but we think it's pretty incredible. Another way to describe family in a certain way, you know, what's a family bond? What's a family connection? What is the relationship within the family in the disparate um, arms of a family as it grows wider? And it's almost an alliance um, an alliance, it's, it's groups coming together for a common something, whether it's help, support, um, uh, discuss, 
strength in numbers, whatever it is. I think it is some kind of an alliance. So, my, you, you just talked about an alliance. Um, you have, you, your family has four generations at the moment. You and Poppy are at the top. You have seven children, seven in-law children. Uh, oh almost, <laughs> almost, o- almost forty grandchildren, and I think almost ten great grandchildren at this point. If I'm not mistaken, I, I think if you tally up all the numbers, you're you're at seventy right now, and and you're soon uh, set to surpass that, uh, without divulging who's expecting right now and who's not. Uh, what was the okay? So when you talk about this alliance and being able to maintain the strong bonds between the different branches of the family, uh, how are you able to maintain a close relationship with all of the different branches of the family when reaching these large numbers? It seems like a very hard thing to do, but how do you seem to do that? Maybe I don't. I, I, I try to have a relationship with everybody. Does everybody feel they have a relationship with me? You know, it's hard to know. I think on one level or, or another, everybody feels that they have a relationship with Poppy, um, Daddy, and me. You know, whether more passive, more, more involved. And I think we work on it. Um, whether we work on it by by our Fridays, you know, we figured out Fridays um, where people come and hang and and whatever it is we do on Fridays, eat, pick, cook, do whatever we do, chat, um, or is it we try to create events. It's not that we have so many events in a year that we get together. I mean, we try. We try the Yuntif. We try this. And then this mix and match, right? One family is with some one family, then another family is with another family. I think, um, I, I think in the next generation and in the coming generation, the word relevant keeps coming up. Um, whether you're relevant to each other to discuss menus or you're relevant to each other because you're handing up or handing down clothes or you're borrowing ideas or you're sharing a sign, that, that, that's the word. It's relevant. And you don't have to, it doesn't need a value. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to define what relevant is all the time. It's whatever happens at a specific time that makes an interaction uh, worthwhile. And I think, how do you do it with so many kids? I guess either I do, we do it better or we don't do it so well, but we try. And probably the people who are more um, lackadaisical or the kids that don't really relate probably get less because you can't think of everything. But we try. Why do we think it's important? Just because we do. It, it almost sounds from what you're saying that a way for you to maintain close relationships with all the different branches of the family is by encouraging close bonds between the different branches themselves, you know, r- regardless to, to where you are in that tree. Would you agree with that? It's not only that. I mean, think about it. Think how many of the grandchildren Poppy learns with. That it, not only is that he's willing, but he's happy to take the time. Can't say the same for me. Um, he's happy to take the time and learn 
with a host of children and grandchildren. I mean, it's like amazing. That's that's being relevant, whether it's about stuff they're doing in school, they want to connect. For whatever the trigger is or reason, that's amazing. Maybe I was lucky. The profession I'm in has value to different generations on different times, so I'm able to participate in conversations that perhaps another grandmother might not be able to. So I hit lucky there. Maybe subconsciously I knew it. I don't think I was that smart. Um, maybe, you know, you're, we, we, we work on it. And we put ourselves, and I really do think we put ourselves out there. Maybe some will feel not enough. Maybe somebody will feel too much. I don't think many feel too much, but maybe. Um, but but we, we do. We try to make ourselves available. So, Oma, you just mentioned how you like to make yourself available to your grandchildren. I want to I wanna maybe pick your brand. Poppy and me. Yeah, Poppy and you. Sorry. That is a, that is a right correction. Um, so, so you talk about putting yourself out there for your grandchildren, but, but I kind of want to ask it from the other perspective. How do you create a situation or an environment where you don't need to approach your grandchildren, but rather they proactively on their own want to approach you? Just lucky, I think. Um, I think with the grandchildren that I've been lucky enough that they approach us is because we make ourselves approachable, I think. And those that don't find us approachable, you know, you know, you ha- still have your style, so you can try to adapt to different styles or different people's uh, needs, but you do have a style. And I guess those that um, are not threatened, it's not even the good word, um, are not turned off by it or, or, or feel it, come come to us. There's a funny aside. I don't know if it belongs here or someplace else. But very often, a lot of my kids over the years complained about, I don't know, what I did with Shiduchim, uh, what we did with all these weirdos at the table, what we did, right? I mentioned that a lot of my kids said they married young to get away from that cuckoo Shabbos table. All things like that. And now I would get I get phone calls um, Ma, I challenged, I channeled you today. I was you. And on the one hand, it's really funny because that kid might have complained. On the other hand, it's flattering. So I think even that conversation, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's approaching our kids and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, not being afraid to approach them and making ourselves approachable. Oh my, I don't know how to intro this next topic without doing it just so uh, outright. Um, Food plays a very big role in the Eisenberg family. Uh, I see you chuckling, and I, and I think that you would agree with that. Um, and, and you talked a little bit beforehand about the uh, the Friday afternoon traditions and, you know, having pizza around, having chocolate bars around. Uh, uh, there was cookie dough for a lot of years also, ice cream, uh, an abundance of ice cream. Um, m- maybe talk to me a little I bit. I had a complaint recent, who shall remain nameless, that... Um 
Been a little low in the brownie department lately. <laughs> hint, hint, you need to make more brownies. Um, after so, Pesach. After Pesach. Um, my next question is, um, what is what is the role of food in your in your? It's not really a grandparenting philosophy because I think it's you know it's it's family wide philosophy. But what what is the role of food in your overall family philosophy, and how do you feel that it brings family closer? So I didn't grow up in a foodie family. That's for sure. We Yekas did not really have. Um, amazing foods, though. We have Bobo's brisket to this day and Bobo's, you know, chocolate and streusel cake. So we do have certain things. Poppy's family, daddy's family. Um, Bubby made more interesting foods, actually, than what I grew up with, right? Yekish is plain Jane. But uh, Bubby made more interesting things, and we, you know, I incorporated a lot of her stuff in, in, in food. But when um, my kids, were, our kids were younger, um, I wouldn't say the food was exciting. Though once I took my Chinese cooking class, right, everybody? We had Chinese um, frequently. And that's where the beef and broccoli came from, and that's where the lemon chicken came from, and the mushu whatevers. So we did do that. But that's not really the issue. I think, we A, we became more foodie as time progressed, and we just became more discerning, and it became fun. But the food thing is even different than that. Conversations about food, to a large extent, are non-invasive and, you know, very often in families, there are some days you don't want to talk about anything. You just don't want to talk about what is foremost in your mind or the struggle that you're really, the challenge you're really, really struggling with. So the inclination is not to call so that you're not put in a position to have to discuss it. And food is a great equalizer. I might not want to talk about a crisis I'm going through, but I can absolutely talk about um, stir-fried chicken or something else, and which still maintains an ongoing relationship, almost like in a safe zone, which sounds really crazy. So that's one thing about food. As the family got bigger and we talked more about it, and... And then there's something cute about it. You can find the same menu many times in 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 the different households, um, you know, and, and in California, the households in Israel and in California, everybody can be making the same thing because they chatted about it. And I think that that's kind of cool. And that, again, goes to connection, alliance, relevance, all that kind of stuff. So food is a great, great equalizer, and there are endless ways to discuss food without it becoming a thing. It's not about we talk about food so that we're fat, because we're not, and it's not we talk about food and we're bulimic, because we're not. It is, it's a conversation. It has to do with interaction and not Sickness, it's about health. It's a healthy comfort. It's a healthy topic 
and a healthy conversation. And I think one of the things, actually now that I'm thinking about it, one of the things, by talking about food in a healthy, positive, family-uniting kind of a way, takes the bugaboo out of being afraid to talk too much about food, too little about food, what damage it can cause, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I think, don't think we're overly focused. Well, some people might say we are. So that's the food and the discussion about food and like the segue from how I grew up to food being more important. But, you know, in grandparenting, food continues to be important. And if you look at the Fridays, so the Fridays is how that evolved. I think years ago, actually, uh, when we first moved here, since there was no Sunday, we tried that everybody should come Sunday um, evening and everybody brought their leftovers and we would um, hang and chat and it didn't work well. It didn't work well because different people came home at different times, different people, kids had different hours and interestingly, it didn't work well and I said to Poppy one day, it's not working and it's causing bad instead of good. The idea was that it should be good, and in fact, it wasn't good. So we stopped it. We stopped the Sunday night thing. I don't know if we did it for a year, two years, three I don't remember anymore. But we stopped it. Um, Sunday was not Sunday, and it wasn't like America, and, and it wasn't good. The Friday thing, I don't even know when it started happening. Somebody came. I don't remember how it even started. And I don't remember when we started ordering pizza. But I also think it's a combination of, it's not just the ordering of the pizza, it's just having stuff back to relevance, which is getting boring right now, um, and approachable. So the cookies in the freezer, they taste good. So everybody wants to go in. It's approachable. You open the freezer, you go for the cookies. It's not like do not enter. And so that's another level of further entry into our lives, our home, our kitchen, our freezer. Then we saw that the pizza, and, and every once in a while I try to do a treat, an experiment, we're frying wontons, we're, we're trying something else. And then we saw that we needed a little upgrade to the pizza. So we went for the French fries, you know, a really well-balanced uh, seven food group kind of a Friday afternoon meal. And we started that, and that appeals to a, to a bunch of them, the not pizza eaters. And then we have the um, camembert cheese honey makers. And then we have the popcorn people. I mean, I sweep up popcorn from the den every Friday afternoon. But I'm happy to. Also, we, we were, we're, we're not only okay, we're happy that the kids, everybody feels comfortable. They want to bathe their kids before Shabbos so they go home to a clean house. I'm happy. I'm happy to wash the towels. It's not a big deal. And the, the, the impact and the connectivity and the approachability, not being afraid, can you do this in your grandparents' house, blah, 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 is I think what we've been aiming for. Will we be able to do it forever and ever? I don't know. Probably not. But for as long as we can, we're really 
happy to do it. So I don't think it's bought pizza versus homemade cookies, but maybe it's the shiluv. It's really about what feels good. So I think if I made pizza, which I'm not particularly good at, that would not feel good. So that we need to buy. But the other stuff, I don't think we can buy, oh, just ask some of you, um, the oatmeal cookies, the brownies, the uh, whatever they call the lotus bar, all that stuff that would taste as good. And like I said, my kids are foodies. What, you think they want to have bad bought cookies? No, I don't think so. Oh my, you just, you, you, you just spoke about for a moment about there's no difference between, you know, homemade items as opposed to bought pizza, etc. cetera. Um, but I kind of want to drill down on that a little more. This is a difference. One I have to bake and the other I have to just <laughs> so, so, so I know that this might seem like a minute difference, but I want to ask you if you think um, that there is value in creating and making food together as a family um, and bringing the family closer together or whether the or whether the connection just happens over the food and then it doesn't matter if you just like you said you know pick up the phone and order from somewhere or if there's any value in the process of preparing and creating food together well on Yantif we're all tushy to tushy in the kitchen and uh, we make that together does that bring us closer together? No, it means we're able to work together, but I'm not sure it necessarily brings us closer together. It's like fun, and we don't mind. Well, sometimes we do, but we don't mind being together and doing it together. Um, I've already given a few Chinese cooking classes, but that was more to show, not necessarily to bond over cooking together. So I don't necessarily know, think no, think if if um, the cooking together, the baking together, is the difference. I think it is the openness and happiness and um, availability and ease around it. I mean, like some Fridays, somebody's making French fries. Somebody's experimenting. Somebody's in the freezer. Somebody brings their parquio to grill outside. Somebody just needs to make a cake. Somebody needs to pick up some ingredients. It's all good. You know, maybe somebody else it would make crazy, and it doesn't mean not make Poppy and me crazy. Maybe it should. I don't know. Maybe we are crazy. So the more I talk about kitchen, you think that all we have is a kitchen. And, you know, one little bedroom and a kitchen. So our kitchen is decent size, but it sure as heck doesn't accommodate the numbers we are. And it's SRO many times in the kitchen, um, standing room only for the uninitiated. However, there is something about kitchen, heart, hearth. I don't know. If you think about families that everybody hates to cook and they order in every day, or every night, and um, and they yogurt and cottage cheese it during the day. I, I there's something in my mind. In my mind, I'm sure they eat well and whatever, and they get exactly what they like. But there is something I think that is positive about a kitchen. It first of all. 
the whole food topic of the taboo today and the nervousness about talking too much about food, what that'll do, um, because of all the um, the the uh, the crazy fears of um, eating disorders. I think if one discusses food in a happy, healthy, and it's part of another conversation, it's part of family, and it's part of family dynamic, and it's part of family interactions, and it's part of families getting together. It has a very positive connotation. It doesn't mean you have to eat everything all day, all the time. Um, and I think in our family, it's borne itself out. Um, you know, it that it 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 comes with a very positive. It's not just love that food is love. It is um, caring. Um, it's, it goes much deeper than that. I, I think it goes to an overall positive, happy, an additional um, um, depth or not feature, but an additional um, aspect that augments family life. And it's part and parcel as opposed to just being about whatever the relationship is. I think it helps expand and and creates um, a wider spectrum of interest and topics and, um, and connectivity. That sounds crazy, but I think it's true. Uh, oh my, I don't think that anyone would have thought that we'd be able to talk about the philosophy behind food for so long, yet we did. I just, <laughs> and, and I just want to ask the, the, the final question on it. Um, do you, we, we talked about uh, thoughtful parenting and thoughtful grandparenting in the, in the beginning of all this. Do you think that the way that you've approached food and just everything that we talked about over the past uh, bunch of minutes on the topic, was it something that you thought about uh, proactively and sort of implemented it over the years? Or was it kind of, you know, different eureka moments that that hit you throughout the years that, you know, then and then you kind of implemented them one at a time? I'm, I'm curious to know how um, how you've approached this whole topic over time. Absolutely not. Remember I told you I came from this yekish household of food? So just that you understand, Bobo, who provided the food in the house or made the food, was the daughter of a butcher in Germany. And what she was best in is knowing what to do with the parts of the cow that nobody wanted. And so when you talk about recycling, we lived a recycled life. So there were, there was a steak night and there was a lamb chop night and there was a chicken. The chicken came with spinach and the steak came with french fries. The lamb chops came with, I can't remember. And then there was haché. Haché was a particular favorite of mine. Haché came, it was all the leftover meat, chicken, whatever was lying around from the week or after Shabbos, I don't remember. Then it was ground in one of those hand grinders that you used to attach to the bottom of a table. I used to have one, I have no idea where it is. And we used to eat that with Worcestershire sauce on top of it. And my kids know I don't like mushy food that much because I think it comes from there. I never really liked mushy food. And that hashé, I can still smell it. 
I can still see it. It was grayish, brownish. It was really awful. So I can't say that I came into marriage with a very strong feeling about food because I was like in the anti-hashé mode of my life probably by then. Needless to say, Poppy and I never had hashé. Um, but, um, and I don't think in the early years, I, I think it, it might have been even when we got here or maybe in the latter years. You'd have to ask the kids. No, it was earlier than that. It was, I remember the minestrone soups we started making for Pesach or not Pesach and the lasagnas. There weren't any of that when I grew up. So I can't remember when we started that and the shells, everybody liked the shells so much that I never saw at home, that's for sure. So somewhere in the, la in the late the years before we moved to Israel and definitely when we came here, maybe I had to adapt to the foods available here. Maybe we decided it was more fun. The truth is I remember that we, we went a number of times to that all-you-can-eat sushi um, at what, I forgot what it was called then, the Hilton, what's now the David Citadel. And I remember I um, ambled over to the guy making the sushi and whispered so nobody could listen, do you ever have a day off? And in honor of your mother's 30th birthday, I think, I hired the guy to come on a Friday morning here to teach us how to make sushi, and then we ate it. Oh, that predated pizza. And it was such a great, it was such a great thing. The truth is your mother started making the sushi first. We were all late, late comers to making it, but she did it immediately. Um, but so that, I guess maybe, maybe it became, I was more open to experimenting here, or maybe, I don't know, easier access. Maybe in New York, we lived in an apartment, a lot of children. I didn't get a chance to like think about ordering. There was more, more many places to order from, and we were a big family, so that was like crazy. We occasionally bought um, fried chicken. We occasionally went to that, forgot the rates, restaurant on 85th Street. It was not good food at all. It'll come to me. And, but otherwise, Kentucky Fried Chicken, we sometimes got, I forgot what it was called, Chicken Delight on the way back from Long Beach sometimes. Sometimes ordered it from the 32nd, 33rd Street place, Sunday night. But on the whole, and occasionally pizza, but basically I cooked, so I had whatever I had without thinking about experimenting. All right, Oma, I, th I think we're gonna, we're, we're gonna stop with the food for now. We're gonna move on uh, to, to <laughs> move on to the next topics of discussion. Um, I would assume that one of the big perks of, of transitioning into grandparenting as opposed to parenting is that you kind of you kind of get rid of the mess. You know, when you have a lot of kids, you know, living around there, you know, there's a mess all the time and you know, you're constantly cleaning up after people and a benefit of getting rid of your kids that, you know, then you have you finally have the house your own and it's clean. Um, but you and Poppy have what I've heard you call before an open house policy, which means that a lot of people come here, not just Fridays and food. People are here over holidays all the time, 
random grandchildren sleep here at random nights. Uh, they have their uh, the the infamous Yashvatsim down in your um, uh, in the basement, and they have I food. Had that in a long time, I miss. It, it might come back. Uh, <laughs> maybe don't offer it here. Uh, but the the point I'm trying to make is is that even though you have transitioned out of parenting and you're a grandparent now, you have this open house policy, um, which involves, like I said, a lot, a lot, a lot of messes. And my question is that why, uh, what is what is the motive behind this open house policy, even with all of the, uh, I don't want to call it a headache, but even with all of the, the attached strings that it comes with? So the truth is my parents had an open house policy. They also had a lot more help cleaning up. But... Um, it goes back to, you know, if you make it easy for kids to come, they come. And, and do you want that? And I guess the answer is yes, we want that. We see that as a value. And if you see something as a value, you have to enable it. Because just saying I see something as a value, it doesn't happen on its own. So it has to be enabled. And then you have to make it. So what does enabling mean? Um, make it attractive, make it compelling, make it interesting to the different generations. You got to stay on your game, you know? I mean, one day it's pizza, the next day it's French fries, third day it's sushi. It, you know, you got to stay on top of this. Um, So I guess as long as we're able to, we would like to continue it. And I mean, it all goes back to the same thing how you view the alliance of family. And that's, that's our take, has always been. And please God, we should be able to continue to act on that belief. No, 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 you did. No, you did. I'm, I'm thinking of how to segue into the next. No, no, you did. I'm trying to think of the, um, I'm trying to think of how to segue into this next question. Just one second. Um, Just say chalas of that. On today. <laughs> no, no, no. It's boring. Oh, boring. It's raining. Oh, mom. I, oh, I, I have 15 minutes. Cause I yeah, have I know. I know. 3.30. Oh my! I, I, I want to bring up this next question with you, and, the, and this is more kind of an, an open question because the question itself may may not be valid. But I'm I'm curious to to hear your perspective on this. Um, so your parents, and then you have children, and each one of those children decides to marry someone unique with their own set of characteristics, and then that new marriage uh, that has been created has however many kids they have, and then they impart different characteristics on their kids and if you do this across seven different branches which is seven different kids you end up having uh just different forms and different and different variations of the family um and that could potentially be something that makes people that makes family drift apart from one another it may make it harder to sort of bridge uh, bridge the gaps between between those the different factions of the family um and and i want to ask you if you if you agree with that thought process um you know just conceptually if you if you think that 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 is correct that you think that family sort of gravitates away from one another as they as they each build their own unique characteristics um and in the event that you do agree with that then then how at the end of the day do you still continue to bridge the gaps between different factions of the family as they each grow in their own particular way and path 
So, of course, every family has its own individual character, culture, um, way of doing things, style. I don't even know what the right word is. And you want to embrace that. And you don't want everybody to be like everybody else. And it's impossible. First of all, all of your children um, are different from one another. And all of their spouses are different. And then the way they raise their children, of course. So there's viva la différence. But then, so I guess what you look for is commonality. Right? You know, you can have different opinions, different approaches, different beliefs, different um, political feelings, different views on life, a million different things. But what brings family together is commonality. And so, I don't want to use the word food again, but there's food. But there's also the interest in maintaining a relationship. And if you remember, I said, you know, everybody has a reason never to speak to somebody again. And if you're going to speak to them, it was a choice you made, and I recommend that choice. You choose to maintain a relationship. And that, that, that's a choice. And you can't force that choice. And you can't, as a parent, as a grandparent, as, you know, there are a lot of players now in, in the game. So you can try to make it easy, make it palatable being together, giving it another focus so you don't have to focus on the differences, but rather the, the experiences. There are like, you know, lots of different ways you try to do things, but it's a choice. People have that choice. They can choose to separate or they can choose to be together. And usually in life, there's a little bit of each. So sometimes you need to separate and sometimes um, you're happy to come together. And we would like to celebrate and enhance in, in, in creating the greater feeling of coming together rather than separating. But you can't shove people down each other's throat and you can't do all this together thing all day long, every day, 365 days a year, because people are different. And this is going to be the last one to work. So, Oma, you talked about finding commonality between, you know, the different branches of the family, even when you have your differences. And, and, and I've heard you mention already a few times this this notion of, of, you know, there's always a good reason to not talk to your siblings, but that you anyways try to find that. And I want to ask siblings, parents, parents and, and, and cousins and, you know, whenever you have grandchildren, you have. So so my question is, is in the event that really let's you know take the extreme event that that there is no commonality and really you know each branch has its own unique character and culture and they don't really want to cross pollinate with one another and they really don't have a reason to you know to to jive with one another so why even in that event would you insist that talking to one another is still um something of prime importance first of all insist doesn't work and insist doesn't, certainly doesn't work in families. And the more you insist, the less you get the result you want. So forget insist. Um, if something has happened in the family that um, everybody totally goes their own way and they have no reason to talk to each other, then something happened further up the food chain. And you don't know exactly what happened, but something bad happened 
and then there's bad blood and this I I hope and pray that that doesn't happen and what we've instilled and what we've modeled is about figuring it out and working through it and if you can't work through it work around it and so I wouldn't you can't insist but you can hope why can't you insist, Chaim just asked? Why can't you insist? Because it doesn't work. I insist you eat your green vegetables, so you put them in your pocket. I insist you talk to your somebody or other, sibling. It's a great idea, but you have to enable it so that it works, or you have to point out enough reasons for it to um, make sense to them. I don't know. Insist doesn't work. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's in the dictionary of um, functional families. The question I'm trying to ask you is, is why is it important? But not not why you can't insist, but why is it important to? You know, why is it important at all costs to taste the tongue? At the end of the day, family is family. At the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be there, best friends, best best friends. Um, best colleagues, best I don't know who's. At the end of the day, if you have a somewhat healthy family, then then you want to maintain that relationship. Um, or I hope you do. Or we certainly hope you do. Oma, looking back, I think in the first episode that we did, a question that I had asked you was what you learned about yourself and about your parenting process by observing your own parents. And here we're talking about grandparenting, which is kind of the next level after parenting. And I kind of want to replicate that same question and ask, what do you think that you learned from your parents observing them as grandparents for your children that you have implemented in your own grandparenting style? So I think I, I learned a lot from my parents. Um, one thing, and I think I've mentioned it before, but because this podcast went over a, you know, a period of weeks or even months, I am afraid a little bit of repeating myself. However, my parents had a very open house and were not afraid of noise. Now, life was a little bit different. Actually, they had you know a lot more help, so... They did not physically have to think about clean up, mess up, uh, cooking, you know, all those kinds of things. And I'm saying that up front because as the generations go down, women are busier, men are busier. It's more of a shared parenting experience. And the physical work is, is, is more than it was for my parents. So putting that aside, and I do, I am not minimizing that, um, they made it easy to come. Uh, you know, there, there was pizza bagels and there was ice cream, you know, in Long Beach. There was um, activity, and it was kind of a little bit, it sounds funny, but benign neglect. And a little bit, I think I've emulated that, the benign neglect. And and also we tried, um, Daddy, Poppy, and I tried very hard for it to be easy to come. I mean, there was a period, not so much now, but probably I should get back into it, where I had pampers in every size and none of my children were in pampers. Um, 
I always have juice. I always have cookies in the freezer. Every time everybody thinks there's nothing in the house, there's always enough to give. Somebody's missing something. Um, you know, there's a TV that I don't monitor for my grandchildren because it's not our job as grandparents. And I think, as what I learned from my parents was kind of, you know, if you build it, then they come. If you make it easy and and um, and not demanding, um, the kids don't mind coming. Um, I remember you don't want to feel like the kids have to come in and have to give you the kiss and make the appropriate welcoming comment. It's nice when kids come in and give you a kiss and say hi. And it's nice um, for grandchildren to learn that you say hello when you come into a house. But there are no those kinds of demands. And I think that's something. So fast forward, I think that those are the things I took. And maybe having taken that and learned that, that gave us the the basis for what we built on. Now, I guess I would have to ask you guys, in addition to that, or taking away from that, what you feel, um, how you feel we have uh, revised that, tweaked it, uh, whatever. But I think that's what I took from my parents or what Daddy Poppy and I took. And, and, and from um, Daddy's parents, from Bubby and Poppy, we took that they just loved their grandchildren and, and was very happy being around everybody. And um, they came more to us than we went to them. Their house was not quite as easy to go to with a lot of kids and, and, and stuff like that. But they came to us and brought that overwhelming love to us. Do you think that that, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this, do you think that having your grandchildren go to their grandparents versus grandparents coming to their grandchildren uh, affects or has an impact somehow on your children's relationship with their grandparents? I, I, I opened myself to that, I realize. Um, no, I think, I, think my, I think our kids had really good feelings and really good relationships with both sets of grandparents. But I think like in many cases, somehow in your brain you have... You can have loving, but you can have different relationships, and you can use your grandparents different ways, and you can gain from your grandparents different ways. And the model that we decided to employ, implement, um, is more of the one that I saw at home with our um, stempel on it, because it's different than what I saw at home. And um, 
and, and different grandparents give different things. And I guess grandchildren also um, gain understanding, even subliminally, of different styles, different approaches, and, and take from that what they want to take from that in, as they go on developing their lives and their parenting and grandparenting. Uh, there's not right or wrong. One might make you happier. One might make you less happy. One, you might feel more like emulating. One, you might feel less like emulating. Um, but, but I think if you feel um, the love, the interest, the caring from grandparents, then it doesn't necessarily make a difference what approach, what style it is. And then you, as the next generation, get to choose what did work, what didn't work, how you feel like going forward. You know, in a way, I was speaking about my um, the, the grandchildren before you get married. But the truth is, everybody comes, and Baruch Hashem, everybody comes from a healthy environment, or they think they come from a healthy environment. We think we come from a healthy environment, uh, but we're not so sure about that healthy environment. Was it healthy? But then the couple comes together, and on the one hand, look at our family. Some people might say we're just a tad overwhelming. Like Pac-Man, we can eat you alive. So, you know, it, it, it could be scary, overwhelming, and they were perfectly pleased with, with what they have. And I think, I think grandparenting, whichever it is, whoever it is, is, is some kind of model. Because once you become a grandparent, you don't really change who you are. And I don't know, somebody told me you don't change who you are once you're really young. So you don't, cha- you don't change who you are. And then the next generation and the, your children decide what they do or didn't like of you as parents and what they saw in their grandparents. And then our grandchildren will look and 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 choose. It's like a smorgasbord, you know. You'll take a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. And you'll have to do something that feels right to you as a couple and also fits where you are in life. You know, how where you live, what your capabilities are, what your capacity is for different things. So um, daddy, Poppy, and I, well, Poppy, because it's more the grandchildren now, um, sometimes go to bed really tired at night, and but have decided that as long as our capabilities hold up and we have capacity for it and... and um, and enjoy it and retain our relevance, I guess, back to the relevant word, we're going to power on. You know, the Energizer battery will probably wear down, but that is how we decided to approach it. Oman, can you maybe talk to me about, so you spoke about the open house policy and how you had learned that from your parents. They was at the pizza bagels, Long Beach was accessible and they made it easy to come. Can you maybe talk about 
one thing that you actively did not implement from observing your parents as grandparents, something that you saw them do whenever your children were their grandchildren, you're like, um, I'm not so sure I'm going to do that when I'm a grandparent. So I think I mentioned it as from a parent point of view that my parents had favorites and my parents also kind of had some grandchildren they liked better than other grandchildren, you know. Actually, we were fortunate because I think my parents really did like my children. Um, but there were some not so much, and that I think is hurtful, and I try very hard. It's not that hard because I just don't have those feelings. So I don't have to try hard to um, to keep them down under because I, I don't have those feelings, but I don't think that's a healthy thing. Now, there are actions, there are things that grandchildren can do that as a parent you act act upon and but as a grandparent you can't really act upon you can hint upon um, you can even sometimes if you've built a good relation somehow bring it up or like I said earlier parenting lasts until everybody is dead and and so you can speak about if you see things to the parent of that grandchild but I think um, the favoritism the favorite thing is just not a good thing in addition I think there's an issue there has to be a basic issue I said it, I think, in terms of children and in-law children and grandchildren, you know, all the um, relations that are one step away from your um, given um, blood child. And that is the issue of trust and loyalty. And I think built in to just at when you when you when you're born as a grandchild, when you come into a family as an in-law child, when you come in as an in-law grandchild, you have to believe that there's trust, that, that there should be trust, and there is loyalty from, I'm not talking about as parents, as in-law parents, as grandparents, and as in-law grandparents. And you have to believe, whether you even see it or not, whether you sometimes perceive it or not, that there is unconditional loyalty on the upper generational side and should be the trust on the other side. And I, I really, the, the older I get, the longer I live, uh, the more I, I believe that. So, Oma, you just referenced two points, actually, that I was going to ask you as follow-on questions, and I'm glad that you talked... Great minds. Great minds think alike, exactly. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I really can consider myself one of those, oh. but whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, so the first one I want to say, and you kind of hinted to this in like half a sentence, I think two questions ago. You said that you have a TV in your living room, but you don't monitor it because it's not your job as a grandparent to monitor what your grandchildren are watching. Uh, and I thought it was an interesting comment, and, and I think that you and I had a discussion about this off the record some time ago. Uh, do you think that there are maybe some instances 
you talked about how grandparenting is, you know, taking a bag of popcorn and going into the stands. Do you think that there are some instances actually where uh, grandparents should take a little bit more of an active role in the parenting? And I don't mean that in the way of stepping in in lieu of the parents, but are there times where grandparents take just a little bit more of an active role in the parenting, whether that be help, whether that be guidance? Have you, have you found yourself in situations where you look at your grandchildren and you think that you should be taking a little bit more of an active role in that? I don't think I would frame it that way. I think that a grandparent's home should be a safe haven. Safe haven means that that you can talk things out that you feel if you feel like it. And your question about a more active role, an active role in grandparenting is really a two-way street, um, different than parenting. Parenting a kid does or doesn't want to really talk to you about something, you talk about it because you think it's something you need to talk about. Grandparenting, you have to tiptoe through the tulips a little bit more. And you um, need to feel that your grandchild is ready, receptive, has the trust, again, that you're loyal to them. And it's really kind of ready to receive. And unless you, that the, the shetach is, uh, is, has been worked or the shetach is ready, A, I don't think grandchildren can hear what you're saying, not listen, but can hear because they're not willing to take it in. And so it goes back to the relationship. If you've built a relationship and the grandchild sees you and understands that you have their back and you're loyal to them and they have that trust in you, then they're ready to hear and receive what you say. And if all those ingredients aren't there, all those elements aren't there, it's like, um, it's just not going to work. But, Omar, you would think that, you know, you said that you like to create a safe haven and that it's a two-way street and that you need to build that relationship. But is there maybe a threat or a danger that if you create too much of a safe haven or a safe space that your grandchildren might feel more comfortable speaking to you or coming to you when really in reality they should be going to their parents? There have been times that some of my grandchildren kind of come and um, chat with either of us, both of us, together or separately, on, on different issues. And they're in the thinking it through stage. And so if they're looking for additional import, and if they're coming to us, we are the parents of their parents. So they're coming in a way to a place that they that is is safe on the one side because we're not going to negate what a parent says but they're looking but it's in line it's aligned so maybe they're looking for confirmation maybe they're looking to understand it better maybe to understand where the parent thinking comes from like that but i we i and and poppy certainly are not looking 
ever, ever, ever to replace the role of the, of a par- of the parents. The job of grandparents is certainly not to undermine the role of parents, but rather to enhance it, sometimes soften it, sometimes explain from where they come from and how they get to something, and to make it more palatable. Sometimes something that you do or don't like that a parent says. That's how I view, and that's part of the safe haven. And again, if a grandchild comes to a grandparent, it's kind of keeping it within, you understand that it's not going to be radically, unless you, th- you see the grandparents as so radically different as your parents, and, and that the parents um, rebelled from all the thoughts of the grandparents. But if that's not the case in your family, then it is, again, a safe haven to express yourself maybe differently. Omar, can you maybe talk about, without going into any specifics or particulars, about maybe a situation where you feel that you might have overstepped your boundary as a grandparent in parenting affairs? I don't think, I can't remember, I can't remember, or from my perspective, I don't think we ever overstepped um, with our grandchildren. I think perhaps we may have seen, observed, were concerned about something with a grandchild and spoke to our children, the parents about it, and in some cases the parent might have said, we disagree or we're on it, say, out of this, or I don't know what. And that's okay, because we're not the parents. And it's a little bit like, you know, in court, asked and answered. We asked, we raised it, we were answered. Either we, we've got it, we disagree, that's a response. We could then maybe, we, we, then, we then apologized and said, you know, we're sorry if you felt that we overstepped. And that was it. Grandparents are entitled to their thoughts, but not to um, override, overstep uh, parents. Absolutely not. So much. just last question on this, though. So looking back again, did you find yourself in a situation where maybe you overstepped your boundaries, your children told you so, and you apologize, but you didn't regret what you did? Or going back, do you think that there were instances that you just wouldn't have done it to begin with? The question I'm trying to get at is that, do you think that it is a a, a parent's role to tell their kids you know, things at all costs, and if sometimes they overstep their boundaries, then so be it, because it's still worth it to tell them everything that you think? Or do you think that it's better to maintain your distance and allow your kids to do their parenting the way that they feel they should do it? So first of all, you know, you don't always know if you overstep. So that's something each one of you are going to have to answer. If we overstepped, or I overstepped, or Poppy overstepped, or we overstepped, um, that you're going to have to answer because maybe we didn't perceive it as overstepping, and you did. But I will tell you something that's anecdotal. 
which is um, interesting, which was interesting to me even at the time. Um, so I believe it's, it's definitely the parent's role. <laughs> My God, who wants the job to be a parent when you have, Baruch Hashem, so many grandchildren? Heck, I'm retired from that. Did the, been there, done that, did parent, and uh, we believe we were active parents, and now the fun is for our children. But what we, happened once, and I think it's happened more than that, which was interesting, is we felt strongly about something, and because we're so shy, me particularly, um, got everybody together after the incident, and I was very clear on how we felt about it. And our children, a number of our children, came to us afterwards and thanked us because it would have been, they felt it would have been hard for them that they couldn't have railed the way we railed about it. And they were kind of grateful that we took a position. Now that was not a one-on-one to one grandchild or anything like that. It was about something that had happened and we wanted our grandchildren to be very clear how we felt about it. And and the parents said that it would have been harder for them to do it, and they were happy that we did it. Now, I can't say that has happened many, many times, and that they stand in line waiting for us to come up with our pearls of wisdom, however, or our crazinesses. However, that did happen, and it was, it was interesting, because I wasn't sure what the reaction was going to be. Just, you know, we were propelled to say what we thought, and didn't didn't really anticipate that the reaction would be po- positive. Actually, probably at the time didn't even care, and uh, probably in retrospect probably should have cared but didn't. And uh, but that doesn't happen a lot. But those kinds of things, I feel grandparents can give you a parent. Then parents can say that was crazy what your grandparents just said, or we totally disagree with that. In that particular instance, it was not that, which kind of made us feel um, validated. I don't know if that really answers your question, um, because it's not specific, but in answer to your specific question, I don't know if I would know, uh, if we would know. I don't remember any repercussions, particular repercussions from a grandchild that we had so wildly overstepped that we did damage or it was something that was awful. We try not to, but I'm sure we've goofed along the way. So I don't know exactly what um, what case you're referring to, but from, from what it sounds like, you're lucky in a sense because in hindsight, when you know, when looking at this situation, you said that your your kids were grateful and that there weren't any repercussions from any of your grandchildren. So, so in a way, it's very it's very validating now. But, but what if that wasn't the case? Meaning, what if your children would have very much disagreed with the you know the wisdom that you had imparted, or if your grandchildren felt that they deeply disagreed with what you had said? Um, that, that, that might have been a little bit of an overstepping of boundaries. And, and do you think that even in a situation like that, that if you and Poppy feel a certain way about something, you should take a stance? And if people don't like that, then people don't like that? 
So firstly, you mixed two answers. Uh, one was the instance where we went in and we were very firm about our thing, and that maybe goes to um, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The repercussion thing was you asked about a specific grandchild and um, specific grandchildren where we overstepped, and that I answered that I don't remember having said, or Poppy and I having said anything or done anything vis-a-vis -a, -vis a specific grandchild that we had repercussions from that grandchild. So there were two separate things. Um, should we voice our opinion? I don't know. I think I think that goes to relationship. If you have what you hope to be a good relationship with your children and your grandchildren, and please God, your great-grandchildren, um, then what you say, you're allowed to say, has value. Can be It can be denounced. It can be disagreed with. It can be negated. It can be it can be anything because the parent has the final um, line in to their children, and and you and you as grandparents don't. But to know that generationally, um, your grandparents have feelings about certain things. I don't think that's bad. I don't. Well, you don't have to as children or as parents. You don't have to agree, and you don't have to act upon it, and you don't have to validate it and you can bring all kinds of reasons but I don't think it is I don't think grandparents stop thinking because they become grandparents and stop having a position on something just because they became grandparents and so you know Wisdom in age, I I, uh, I don't know, but they don't have the final word. So if, unless you're a very weak parent, and the grandparent overrides what you say, and the children don't listen to you as parents, but I don't think that's the case in our family. I don't think I, there are any weak children, weak parents, on and you know, in the Eisenberg line. So. Maybe that's where it comes from. I don't know. But I, I don't think grandparents lose their value changes. Like in any situation, um, value and worth goes up, goes down, depending on what's going on in, the, in life. Essentially, in parenting and in grandparenting, and in almost any role, you... You make the role what it is, depending on who you are. It's how you fill a role, or how you decide um, what the position of that role is within its universe. Parents who say, I can't say anything to my kid, I don't know what, about dating, about what they wear, about where they go at the age of 13 and 17 and 20, do you think they're going to be saying anything at when the kid is 30 or 40 or 50? No. So it's it's perhaps how you feel about responsibility to your children and grandchildren. Do you want to abrogate responsibility? I didn't feel I wanted to. I always used to tell the kids that I was never interested in a teacher being a mentor. I wanted them to be very clear 
on who they were blaming when they were on a couch one day. And it's about, um, I think, we feel it's about responsibility and and about abrogating responsibility. And, and then you have choices. You can listen. You can... You can hear it and not listen to it. You can decide to think about it. You can integrate it. You can not. Those are choices. You know, I don't know if I'm about to say really belongs in the parenting part or this part about grandparenting, but, you know, it's a hands-on, hands-off thing. We always believed in hands-on parenting. And when I look at the world today, I see a lot of hands-off parenting because of fear. Parents are afraid what hands-on might lead to that the kid could rebel, the kid could decide, the kid this, the kid that, I don't even know. And we always believed in hands-on parenting, but I think the message we gave of hands-on parenting is, so we take it from the top, let's take it from the top. Hands-on grandparenting to people who believe in hands-on parenting, that would be our children, who are giving tools to their children who are getting married now and going older to be hands-on parent too. So you're empowered to listen or to not listen because you yourself are hands-on. You know, if grandparents are hands-on and they say something to grandchildren that have hands-off parenting, parents, so that's not a good thing. But if you kind of skilled up to being hands-on all the way down the channel, then you can be challenged and and you can say things because they're not the final word. I mean, you said, you said you're not so sure that it fits here in this part, in this segment that we're recording right now, but it, meaning if, if I understand what you're saying, you know, right now is hands-on parenting continues well into grandparenting also because you actually never stop becoming a parent and, you know, you pass that on to your children and they pass that on to their children and, you know, you're, you're still your children's parent even, you know, once they're in their 40s and 50s, like you said. Which, which goes to children and their children can disagree with you. Oh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to something that we had spoken about uh, beforehand, and I, and I kind of want to you know, uh, go back to that. You talked about the role of trust. I think it was in the context of grandchildren-in-law specifically. Um, and I was hoping that maybe you'd be willing to expand on that and what really is the role of trust, why you think it's something that's so important uh, in your family in general, and more specifically, as you end up having more add-ons to your family that are a little more removed from your bloodline, why that trust is so important and what, what it actually means. How does it come into, you know, into play? I think trust is the right word because like when I came into Poppy's family, I had to come in with trust that they loved me because their son loved me and that they would have my back, they would be loyal to me, and I, needed to, and I needed to trust all those things as those were the truths. And how do you know that? You come in as a stranger, and you, you like them, you don't like them as much, the new family, you're, you're unsure, you're not used to that kind of a noisy, loud, I don't know, intrusive, family. 
but you have to come in with a certain amount of trust that you're going to be accepted and that you should accept because once you're theirs, they've got you and they've got your back. And there are ups and downs and it's not always perfect and maybe some days it's really imperfect. But bottom line, if you believe that or you try hard or you come with that mindset instead of a non-trusting mindset, it's ultimately better for you entering a family and the family receiving you. Soma, you brought the example of when you entered Poppy's family that you felt that you needed to enter his family with the sense of trust. But I kind of want to ask it, so, so you know this idea or this concept of having trust when entering a new family, but I want to ask it in the reverse way, in the sense of when you have in-law children entering your family or when you have grandchildren-in-law entering your family, what do you think that you do in order to give them the sense and the feeling that they can trust you and that they can trust the family that they're now entering? I would assume that that's not, that's not something that's so easy. Listen, there's no one recipe and there's no one answer. Um, I, I, I can say what we do in our effort. We're delighted that the kids come to us and introduce us to whoever it is that looks like going to be one of ours. Sometimes they've been here before. We've had some cases where some people did dates in our den um, early on. We had a chance to get glimpses early on. However, we try. We try to be inclusive. We try not to be too... Um, too, in, too intrusive, too, you know, drilling down, kind of, we, we try to be welcoming. And, and then, but we don't, we don't totally benignly neglect a new person. We try to be interested and, and we try to create an environment of caring, concern, and trust. Are we successful? I don't know. Maybe sometimes yes, sometimes more, sometimes less. Can we do it any differently? Maybe, but we do the best we can. And, um, and we have to hope that it's going to, you know, take root and, and bloom from there. As grandparents, we can, you know, as parenting, but as grandparents, this is what we do without trying to overstep. And we, in turn, hope that the response is going to be in equal measure to what we perceive we give. Oma, on to the last question and continuing the tradition that we've done till now in the previous two episodes. If there is just one piece of information you could choose to pass on to your grandchildren or if there is one point about grandparenting that you would like to tell your children and your grandchildren, what would it be? Look, as a grandparent, we're, we would love, we're invested in, we try hard to um, impart that 
you're quite a collection of, of and a force and a tribe and staying together and being there for one another is something we we wish for and I guess the flip side of that is what I said early on that everybody has a reason never ever to speak to somebody certainly a family member close, distant, ever again in their life because either they were slighted, they were annoyed by, they were somethinged and if you speak that means you chose to speak it was a choice you made and we recommend that choice, we recommend you make that choice, so I guess staying together, being there for each other and keep speaking, whether it's loud, whether it's yelling, whether it's laughing, whether it's just plain noise. Oh, well, I think that that's a wrap. Thank you so, so much for, for your time and for your investment in this. And I'm, I can tell you that on the personal level that I really have learned a lot and I'm really excited for the rest of your descendants to have the opportunity to listen to this. I can see that you're tearing up a little bit even from that last answer. So, and, and looking at myself right now, I think I am a little too. But uh, again, just really thank you very much for your time and I look forward to putting this out. And my last word is, I'm still nervous about this whole thing, whether it's a good idea or not. There's also another kind of a concept that I'd like to share uh, with you. It's the concept of Hakarata Tov. And I think it's something that we kind of neglect to talk about in our day-to-day lives. We act upon it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. That's kind of what I want to talk about. And I think it is really a, a core of the way we act, of the way we should act. So what do I mean? Let's say you do something good for somebody. I don't know. You you think of something. You preempt a situation. You solve a real problem. I don't know. So what is Hakarat Hatov? It doesn't have to be public. It can be private. But the idea that the people on the other side, if you did something really deep or life-changing or I don't know for them, the idea that they appreciate it and value it, and it's not a passing moment thing. It is something that lingers, because if it is really deep and life-changing, I don't know, um, 
solving a a crisis they have, finding the right doctor for them when they really have an issue, making a shidduch, um, a, a host of things, um, and and. Th- there is, there is a level of appreciation, even publicly, or even when you meet someone, that you know you have this kind of special bond, but it doesn't. Sometimes it has to be private and silent, and sometimes it doesn't. And the other way around, too, if somebody does something for you that is helpful, that affects your life in a positive way, that I don't know, it's not just thank you very much. But the Hakarat HaTov is a longer lasting, it's like a, it's like a time release capsule that, or an extend tablet that keeps going. You have to show that appreciation and mention it whenever you can, in, in public, in private, because it is something that is deeply meaningful to both sides of this equation. And so I just want you all to think about Hakarat HaTov as almost a standalone um, concept. Why do I bring it up now? I guess as a grandparent, having lived through these kinds of experiences myself, having seen what positive hakarat hatov can do to all sides of a, I don't know what, if it's not, a, not necessarily a transaction, but an issue, and not, and the opposite, and, and the feelings that can be created on either side if it isn't done. I really feel that, I guess, from my perspective of age, and life experience, a lot of you have not begun to come across something like this yet. And so I'm like priming the pump. I'm giving you the tools to think about it so that when you have such a situation, when you've done something really wonderful or somebody has done something really wonderful for you, you can hit the ground running in the right feelings. Oh, Ma, can you maybe give an example as to what uh, prompts you to think this way or a situation where you felt that you had expressed hakatatov towards someone else or that someone expressed it towards you that just made you feel that, you know, this is that important and noteworthy? Well, I don't really want to go into specifics, but in our, in our situation... Um, in one of our pregnancies and births, we have enormous ongoing hakarat hatov to a rabbi. And that hakarat hatov does not stop. You can even hear the emotion in my voice. That hakarat hatov goes with you for forever. And talking about it, in, in appropriate places at appropriate times does should not stop. It's not a one-time event that has a beginning and an end, a ball game that comes to an end. It's ongoing and forever. 
And I, we have many, many more examples of that on that side. On the other side, when I have one example, I have some examples. I have been lucky to make a few shiduchim in my life, and the people who continue being, I don't know if the right word is appreciative, I'm sure everybody's appreciative, but who often mention it in different times. Oh, you know, when you're in a circle with people, oh, she was Arshad Khanit or something. It's an ongoing, it's life-changing. It is, it's life-changing for forever. Something like a shirach, but something like a help if somebody's sick. Those things are life-changing. And that level of appreciation is ongoing. It doesn't have a full stop after the event or the happening or the act. That's what I think. So I've touched on many, many different things, and this is just another one. But I did not want to... um, not discuss this really, really important thing um, and let it go without discussing it this time.